across, yes. Okay, today is, hello, there it is, okay, <laughs> today is August the 30th, 2011, we've got one more day in this month, and maybe just another day or so of the hot weather, then I hear we're going to have maybe some rain, that would be nice. Uh, remember, do they still have time tonight, Mary, to get in there? Yes, sir. If you want to come to the, if you want to eat after, well, just talk to Mary after it's over. No, she's still taking money right now. Okay. Have you ever noticed sometimes the less you say, the better? <laughs> There's no saying. When you're in deep water, keep your mouth shut. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty word, your faithfulness, for the principles that you've given us to live by. It's not our normal inclination to live that way, but we recognize that you have given us the mode, the method, the principles that will give us the abundant life. We thank you that you have revealed in your word the great and mighty things that are yet to come, that we can have a personal sense of eternal destiny, that we can read ourselves into the picture. It gives us confidence and hope, confidence of the future. And now we pray that you'll help us to focus, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I was going through some uh, different articles. Have you ever gone to Drudge, the Drudge Report? They have, a, I don't know, about 50 or 60 different articles. And I found this under Phyllis Shafley, which is one of my... Um, favorite authors. And what she's pointing out actually is when we ignore God, when He gives, gives us something that's very easy and clear to understand, and we ignore it, when I say we as a nation, we don't get by with it. There's unbelievable consequences to ignoring God and disobeying Him. And this is essentially what she's covering here. And I've Whittle this down. It's still about a page long, but um, it, it was so good. The name of it is, Oh, How America Has Changed. And what she's going to be focusing on is the fact that God has revealed to us that we are not to cohabit. We are to marry, that fornication is an abomination to God, and we sin against our own bodies when we do this. We see in the Old Testament what God thought about this. The penalty for it was death. That's how serious, serious God is about this. And it's not just about morality. God understands that if we collectively ignore this, that this one very thing can bring a nation down. It is a, it is a broadside attack 
against the family, the divine institution of the family. And the fa- in fact, all the divine institutions are under attack, but the family is under attack like it has never been in my lifetime and maybe hasn't been in a, a long time. So you might keep that in mind as I go through this article. Legitimate births for all Americans have risen from 26% in 1990 to 41% today and could be headed higher. Among among Hispanics, illegitimacy is 53%, and among blacks, it's a staggering 73%. And among whites, it has risen to a shocking 29%. That means... About We're getting close to a third of the babies being born are illegitimate among whites, half over half of the Hispanics, and nearly three out of four in the blacks are the black population are having babies out of wedlock. This extraordinary change is the primary reason that government budgets, both federal and state, are so bloated. Without fathers to provide these millions of children, uh, their mothers turn to big brother government. The economist Robert J. Samuelson recently concluded that, quote, welfare, the welfare state is winning the budget war, end of quote. The bipartisan budget deal which slashed our military budget but kept welfare state handouts mostly off limits turned out to be a triumph of the welfare state over the Pentagon. The Heritage Foundation reports that 77 types of federal means-tested handouts already cost $522 billion a year. Mean-tested handouts means you have to qualify. You you can't make so much money. Uh, For instance, if you're going to get aid to a family with dependent children, uh, you have to be a single mother without a job and without a husband. That's the means that you have to have that to be able to qualify. So these mean-tested handouts cost $522 billion per year before Obama took office. He increased this grant amount to $697 billion per year in the first half of his term. That's right at $2 billion, with a B, dollars a day. And now half Americans, half of Americans depend, for, depend on, uh, for their living expenses in whole or part on government handouts paid by others. In Ronald Reagan's famous caveat, he said, when you subsidize something, what happens? You get more of it. The other corollary to that is not here, but if you tax something, you get less of it. Wouldn't it be something if they put a tax on <laughs> single mothers who have babies out of wedlock? They throw another tax on them. I think that might slow it down. I don't know. That's not part of the deal anyway. Um, so the subsidies to women who have no husbands in the house have promoted more and more children growing up without fathers. The American public has been alerted to the effects of family breakup ever since Daniel Patrick Moynihan, remember him? In 
1965 wrote a report called The Negro Family. That was just 1965. I was a junior in high school at that time. What would happen if you... This isn't part of the article, by the way. I'm just talking again. What would happen if you found an article in the paper today that said the Negro family? (laughs) My, how things have changed. So, the Negro family, the case for national action. That was his report. We can now see clearly that giving cash benefits to single moms began with Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty and it destroyed families by making fathers unnecessary, listen to this, and even a barrier to women receiving free money. That's what that government project did. I'll read that again. Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty destroyed families by making fathers unnecessarily, unnecessary and even a barrier to women receiving free money. The common sense analysis was confirmed by the British commentator uh, Melanie Phillips who described the current London riots as the result of, quote, the promotion of lone parenthood, unquote, and the willful removal of fathers from the family until the welfare state and the ultra-feminist wreckers of the traditional family with its male breadwinner she calls for removing the incentives to girls and women to have babies out of, outside of marriage and for dismantling the concept of entitlement from the welfare state. Well, someone is thinking clearly across the pond, aren't they? The religious left has injected itself into the U.S. budget debate by corralling a list of left-wingers to sign a statement called, quote, Circle of protection, unquote, opposing any acts to cut welfare uh, and uh, to cut welfare and state spending. This group made a political slash running newspaper ads featuring the pro- provocative question, quote, "What would Jesus cut?" End of quote. Now I've got to stop here for just a minute because this just what they're saying is that they, they're circling the ragons and saying that uh, trying to make people feel guilty who would be against welfare. Now, these are Christian organization and Christian leaders. And I say, shame on them. First of all, they would be promoting something that's totally unconstitutional. But more importantly, they're going against the design that God has given us, the pattern in the Bible for taking care of people who are in need. And it wasn't until the early 60s, 1960s, that this was foisted upon us in this country, especially to the degree that we have seen it as never before, that I'm aware of. And here's the, here's the problem. The government doesn't have any business in any of these areas anyway. It is the families and the church's responsibility to take care of people who cannot take care of themselves. And for any Christian organization or Christian leaders to advocate, uh, more than advocate, even to make people feel guilty by saying, what would Jesus cut? Well, I think what Jesus would cut is, 
I know what I would do if I was Jesus. I'd cut their head off. <laughs> that's where the cutting would be. Uh, that's certainly not in the article, by the way. Do you see what I'm talking about? How the people that don't know doctrine will fall prey to this claptrap. And they will think, oh, what would Jesus cut? Jesus wouldn't cut these programs. And so much talk these days is centered around things that ought not even to be the focus to begin with. When, when Katrina hit, neighbors, families, Christian organizations moved in and started taking care and helping uh, take care of the need there. And then here come, comes FEMA and every, oh, you see all that evaporate. It's all gone. Well, I'm, I'll, there's only one more sentence here. But I had to, had to get my two cents in there. I don't want you to be thinking that, oh, what would Jesus cut? He would cut out all that nonsense for one thing. Okay, then here's the last two things here. Welfare state spending is a major cause of our debt, and it is also morally costly because it chases fathers out of the homes. The Heritage Foundation figures don't even count the social and fiscal cost, costs of the drugs, sex, suicide, school dropouts, runaways, and crime that come mostly from female-headed households. All those things take a tremendous toll and cost also. And then she ends it by saying, also welfare spending is a failure. It doesn't advance us toward any constructive goal such as helping recipients to get on their feet economically. It merely increases dependence on government handouts and votes for left-wing politicians. End of quote. Um, I was looking at some figures of how many people are on food stamps, and it's shocking. It's, uh, it's just... Uh... By the way, I don't want to end without giving you the biblical perspective of what she's talking about, and we just saw it recently in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. And you might remember... What Paul said, if you don't eat, I mean, if you don't work, you don't eat. Just that much right there. If we would follow that guideline, and if the churches and the families and the people would take hold of the responsibility that God has given them, we wouldn't be in quite such a mess as we are today. Okay, now, I've got something brand new for you. I've worked on this all day. It's another PowerPoint. I'm just spitting these PowerPoints out recently. And it's something that uh, we've seen a little bit of, but not a whole... I, I've worked on this and added some things to it. And before I put it on the screen, so I still have your attention here, what we're looking at on this PowerPoint is crucial. It's giving you keys that unlock certain principles and meanings in the Bible. Without these keys, you're going to get confused. You'll, you'll, you'll recognize some of it already, but this is I've, I've made it more uh, presentable. Here is what we're going to look at here. The dual meaning of words in the Bible. Now, the first one is a phrase, but essentially it's the words. Now, we're going to be looking at this from a particular and a specific perspective. Now, we all know that words have more than one meaning, especially in the uh, English language. Uh, the word trunk can be the trunk of your car. 
It could be the trunk of an elephant. It could be one of the trunks that you put clothes in. It could be the trunk of a tree. And nearly every English word has several meanings to it. But that's not what we're not just looking at that type of meanings uh, with regards to the words that I have listed on the left. We're looking at the dual meanings of these words with regards to whether they are referencing something that is positional or something that is experiential. Now, you'll, you'll see, first of all, under positional, I have everything in positional in blue. Positional, in the sense that we're looking at these words, means that it depends on God apart from works. And you'll hear, you've heard in this ministry over and over, positional, positionally. And essentially what that's saying is God does the work. He doesn't depend upon us. It's apart from works. It's totally and completely dependent upon His grace, His Word, His faithfulness apart from our works. That's positional. And we're also going to see that when He does something, and we call it in a positional sense, it's permanent. Can't undo it. He does it and it's done. When God ties a knot, it doesn't come undone. That's the positional. The other sense is experiential. Now, the experiential is kind of a, I don't know, brownish red here. And in the position, excuse me, experiential sense, it means it depends on God plus our works. We can't do anything on our own, even in an experiential sense, that God is going to accept and promote us on that basis. Even when we have positive volition and we are working, we're obedient, and we're trying to execute the Christian way of life, even then, we cannot do it apart from God's help. And the most fundamental principle there is being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we are able to execute the Christian way of life. Apart from that, we're just doing nothing but human good. might be good referencing other people. I mean, other people might look at it and say, oh, that's good. But God only accepts what He can do through us. He does the part that is permanent. But now we're left on this planet in order to accomplish certain things. And God gives us the means, the power, the knowledge, everything that we need to do it. But it still involves our work, our effort. That's the difference between this positional and experiential. And as we go through these, these uh, the first one is overcome the world. And we see that it's in a positional sense and we see it's in an experiential sense. And we're not just going to say, okay, those are the verses and move on. We're going to look at each one of these words or phrases and let it impact us so that we can distinguish on our, in our own minds what does it mean in a positional sense and in an experiential sense, okay? So the first one we're going to look at is the phrase, overcome the world, and the positional sense is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, and let's go there. First John chapter 5 and verse 5. 
Well, we can incorporate verse 4 also. It, I, what I was really hard-pressed to do is there's so many verses that describes each one of these. I had to try to narrow it down to the best ones, but only this positional sense of overcoming was hard to find. This is one of the few verses I could find. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 5, And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In that sense, we are overcomers. And it's because of our faith. And we know that this is positional because it is referencing faith in Jesus Christ. This is, this is going to be your main key. As you go throughout the Bible, there's going to be... I've got nine different words here that we're going to look at. And there's more. I could, I could do more, but this is enough for you to understand that when you're going through the Bible and you see a word, you see a phrase, you have to determine, is it something that God has done? Is it done in a point in time? Is it positional? And the way to determine is, first of all, is it dependent upon faith alone in Christ alone? If it's dependent upon faith alone, then you can pretty well reckon that it is positional. Because it is because of that faith that God does a multitude of things for us at the point of salvation, and they all fall under the category of permanent, positional things that He did, all on the basis of one thing, and that is our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes it positional. And that's what makes this one positional. Because at the end, in verse 5, it says, and, he, <clears throat> and who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you can see that. That faith alone at salvation is what makes this positional. And we have overcome the world because of that. Now, we're not just going to skip right by this because I'm going to make you think tonight. I want you to formulate in your own mind, be able to answer this question. We've, we, this says that we overcome the world by our faith. But I want you to formulate in your own mind, what does that mean? What does it mean that we have overcome the world by our faith in Jesus Christ? Think about it a moment. How have we overcome the world by our faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody have any ideas? Yeah, but we haven't got to experiential yet. This has to, we have to think in this one in terms only in the positional sense. We'll get to the experiential in the, in the moment. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, she, I, I should be given here. We'll get ready to get this if people have. She said because the world... Uh, uh, We've overcome those in the world who would say that we have to have works in order to uh, have eternal salvation. Is that what you're, essentially what you said? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, but here's the only... What you said is true. But that's, that has to do more, again, with the experiential sense. We're talking about how have we overcome the world with what God has done. Not anything at all what we are able to do, but only because of what God has done, how does that make us overcomers? Well, yeah, it's all set on believing. We see in this verse, this is ba- we are overcomers because we believe, but what does that mean? The what? Okay, we have been overcome spiritual death. Okay, what were you going to say? We've been removed from Satan's kingdom. That, that's, these are good. That's getting close to it. But let me articulate it to you, what I'm getting at here. What do we have as believers that we did not have before we believed in Jesus Christ? What do we have? What are our assets that we have now that enable us to overcome the world? Okay. See, now you're saying things that are positional things that God has done. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, don't we? This isn't something we do, and it's permanent. God accomplished it. This is one way that, in a positional sense, we have overcome the world. What else? We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What else? We have God's perfect righteousness. Now, what does that mean to us, though? What does that, when you tell someone we have God's perfect righteousness, that sounds religious to most people. See, we can't just tell them that we have God's righteousness and think that it's going to mean anything to them. We may know what it means, the importance, but we have to spell it out for them. And this is one of the great things that we have. And we do have God's righteousness. How does that help us overcome the world? It helps us overcome the world as believers who know that we have God's righteousness, that we don't have to spend all our time and energy trying to be accepted by God based on our righteousness. And this is another thing. We're going to get, look, I'll show you the list a little bit. Look, there's righteousness way down there. We'll get to that. What else? What else? How else have we overcome the world that God enables us to do it based on the point of salvation when we believe in Christ? What has He done to help us? Now, we've got, we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What was the other one we were just talking about? Oh, right. All right. We, we know that we have God's imputed righteousness. Can y'all think of some more? George? Amen. You said it, brother. <laughs> We're no longer enslaved to our old sin nature. That's huge. That's what God has. That's how we have overcome the world. How could we overcome the world if we weren't able to have victory over our old sin nature? Very good. I didn't know that somebody was going to come up with that, but kudos to. See, now y'all are thinking. Now you, you got what else? What else? Can you think of it? Yes. <laughs> it only takes you 20 years to come up with that. <laughs> You're right. Okay, Doc? Yes, he gives us... 
we're kind of morphing back then into the experiential a little bit here, though. But we, he, he does give us his promises and we can faith rest. But I'm, I'm looking more for something that happens immediately when we, are, when we believe in Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes, he, he gives us the ability to understand. And that, that's, that's a good one. Uh, he gives us what we call the grace system of perception. We can overcome the world. Anybody that's a believer can overcome the world because if they have the desire, they can understand the whole realm of doctrine, can't they? There's one more that I'm not, just for sake of going on, I'm going to say unless somebody else wants to say something. We have a few little, got some of these. There you go. I was looking for that one. In Christ. What does that mean? That we are in Christ. Doesn't that give us confidence? Doesn't that give us the, the, the that's part of our eternal security. That's part of the package. We don't have to go around thinking, oh man, I know I, I know that you know I, I, I had God I have God's righteousness, but I did something. I don't think I'm in Christ anymore. Not being in Christ, and see that happens at the point of salvation. Boom, we have that. These things are unique to church age believers. First John was written to who? Church age believers. Uh, I, I'm not. By the way, I'm not going to go to this length on every one of them, but I want you to understand we're not just going to have a list. Yeah, I've got those, and let's just move on. We have to think these things through. This is why we have positionally overcome the world. We have victory in that sense. You, did somebody give yours? The indwelling of Christ. Uh, these are permanent things, and they have uh, meaning to us in that way. Okay, now let's look at the experiential side of overcoming the world. And we go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. We're in 1 John. If you're in 1 John, we don't have far to go. Remember, I've told you this, and I'm going to try to keep hammering on this bibliology. If I ask you, where do you go in the Bible to find where the, the um, rewards and decorations of, or so forth are given more explicitly and more in amount than any other place? It's in Revelation chapter two and verse uh, chapter two and chapter three. This is uh, Jesus Christ writing through John and writing to the churches, seven churches that were still on, uh, existing at that time. And you're going to notice over and over and over in chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're going to hear the verse starting out by saying, it's a qualifier, it says, to the one who what? Overcomes. Now that is talking about experience. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now when you see have, he who has an ear... We all have ears. This is talking about those who have positive volition. Anyone can hear the Word of God, but only those who are hungry for it have ears. That's, it's just a, I guess you could say, a metaphor for positive volition. To him who overcomes. Now, that is an experiential overcoming. It depends upon the believer and his efforts. This is, Pardon? Plus God, right. Plus what God gives him to overcome. 
So we have, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that's a reward, but it's qualified. And this overcoming takes the effort of the believer plus the power of God, and that will result in these rewards. And someone will say, okay, big deal. I'll get to eat out of a, a fruit off the tree. Well, <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that. I'm not going to stop now and go to all the ramifications of this. For one thing, you've never seen a tree that had a different fruit on it every month. Uh, and I, I, I don't care if you get organic fruit. I imagine when you take a bite out of this... <laughs> But everyone won't be able to do it. This is, there's going to be a, there, I, I doubt that there'll be a sign, but it's going to say, this is for the mature believers only, mediocre believers stay out. I don't know if there's going to be a sign like that in heaven, but uh, there might as well be, because this is only for, this is only for those who what? Overcome? Their effort, their positive volition. United with the power of God, and this is one of the things they get. Let's go to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Revelation 3:21. It starts out, He who what? Overcomes. That's a qualification. Not all people get this, just those who overcome. I will grant him to sit down with me on my Father's throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne throne. How about that? How, how would you like to saddle up next to Jesus Christ and God the Father? Special. He who overcomes. Go to Revelation 21. Next to the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 21 and verse 7. Well, let's start with verse... Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with 7. Look how it starts out. He who overcomes. See? He. You got this? He who overcomes. The believer who overcomes. God has done all the other part with the positional part. Now, he who overcomes. And, of course, you know this is just means he or she. It's just he who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And then you see, but for the coward and the unbelieving and so, and so forth. We're going to even get to son. Look it down here on the list. See there, son? Even the term son is used in a positional and an experiential way. And we'll go to the verses. Every one of these, we're going to go to the verses and you are going to be forced to see by just looking at it that it has to be in one camp or the other. And what I want to do is get all of you to where you can look at Scripture, have these keys, and be able to determine is this something that God does in total for us at the moment of salvation or is this something that is incumbent upon us? Is this something that we have to work towards? And when you get those two mixed up, whoo, you're going to really get mixed up. All right, let's go. The next one is inheritance. Well, before I go in, is there any, other, is there any more questions, anything before we move on, on overcoming the world? We all overcome the world as believers because of what God has done. But experientially, He has given us the power to overcome it in a different way. Okay, let's look at inheritance. First of all, we'll go to Galatians 
And we're going to look at inheritance in the way that most people see it. In fact, they think this is the only type of inheritance there is. We'll go to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What does it mean we're Abraham's offspring? What is that talking about? Yeah, it's a spiritual sense. Who are genetically Abraham's offspring? The Jews. But we are, in a spiritual sense, Abraham's offspring. God gave Abraham a special, unconditional covenant that he would have all these heirs and the entire world would be blessed through Abraham. Who, is in, who came from the line of Abraham that blesses the entire world? Jesus Christ. What did Abraham say? He is our pattern. Three or four places in the Bible it says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And so when we see verse 29, it says that you belong to Christ because we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. We're intimately united to Christ forever. If, and you are, or we do belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, spiritually speaking. And if that's true, we are heirs according to the promise. What was true for Abraham is true for us. If we believe in the promise of eternal salvation, which for us is faith alone in Christ alone, then we are heirs along with Abraham. You got that? And that is all positional. What does all this hinge on? What does all this depend on? Faith alone in Christ alone. That's what makes it Positional. You see that? Are you all ready to press on? We'll see one more verse here with positional. We'll go to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Romans is a powerful book. I mean, there is so much doctrine in Romans. It's a, you can't hardly understand the Bible without understanding Romans. I mean, you, I don't know how you could. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. And look at this. We have something about Abraham again. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants. Are we his descendants? Yes, we are spiritually. that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He believed, that's the faith, and God credited it 
as righteousness. And this is how he became heir of the world, is, is what this is saying. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there any violation. That's, that's another issue. I just stopped. I should have stopped at verse 14 because I don't want you to think about that other right now. In both cases, can you see how this is positional? We are heirs because we are essentially spiritual descendants of Abraham. Abraham set the pattern. He believed and God counted that as righteousness. It's the same pattern with us. All that hinges on faith and it's positional. Now, let's turn our Bibles to Romans 8, 17 and we're going to see a different type of inheritance. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. I guess we'll start with 16 because we're breaking in the middle of a sentence here. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. That's the inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I was looking at this verse today, and I'm thinking... Now, I hadn't exegeted this and I hadn't gone into it a lot, but I'm thinking that both inheritances are in this verse. Watch it with me. Watch. The Spirit bears with our witness that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God. Heirs of God here, I think, is referring to positional inheritance, positional heirship based on faith alone, and that makes us heirs of God in a positional sense. And then it says, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then we have the condition. If indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we only have the experiential inheritance if we suffer with Christ. See, that's, that second part definitely is experiential, but I don't see any, con, any condition with heirs of God. So I'm, you know, I'm not making... I'm just telling you what my first, without exegeting this and going to the nth degree, it appears that could be positional and definitely fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him. That is experiential sanctification. Yes, Here. Uh, I don't have my LeBron except you can look at uh, either. Michael, you got your computer? You have yours, Vidal? I'm almost certain it's, it's a, a third, class. third class. Yes, third class. Okay. Yeah. Present active indicative. That means it's not one shot suffering, it's over and over. Won't you just hold on to it? Yeah. Uh huh. Yes, Michael. Right. That's the whole context of this appears that that is talking about positional 
And then as you go on, and also uh, heirs of Christ, if third class conditioning, maybe we will suffer with him and maybe not. So see, even this is a good example. Even in one verse, sometimes you will have a positional sense and an experiential sense, and you cannot get these mixed up. Or the next thing you'll get into is works-based salvation, or else, you, or legalism. Yes. Right. Uh huh. That that would make it that third class condition means that it's only a potential. And and see, here's the thing. When you anything let me put this in the question form. Don't answer out loud, just think about it. Any of these areas that are positional, what what will their uh conditional clause be? Will it be first class conditional clause, if and it's so? Second a second class conditional clause, if and it's not so. Third class, it would be maybe so, maybe not. If it's positional, what is it going to be? First class. God's not going to leave anything left undone, any potential. It's a done deal. It's done. That's where we can relax with regards to eternal salvation. But with regards to why God left us on this planet, we can't relax for a moment because He expects us to fulfill our duty to provide the work that He has given us to be faithful servants. And we can't do that in ignorance. All this is tied together. Okay, uh, that was all in uh, Romans eight seventeen. Now let's turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Girls eat peaches and cream. <laughs> That's the acrostic, you know. I never learned it that way. Okay, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's another example of an inheritance that we must work for. See, the whole context of this is working. Verse 23, whatever you do. I told someone within the last few days, I said, when you're working, whether the boss is there or not, you work full out, the best of your ability, because you're not really working for him, you're working for the Lord. And when you are faithful and you do your job as unto the Lord, the Lord is going to promote you. You don't have to worry about impressing the boss or anything. He will promote you because you demonstrate that you're faithful. So this is talking about working, see? Whatever you do, I don't, it doesn't matter whether you're a 
garbage man on the garbage truck. You'd be the best garbage man in the whole state. You're always there on time. You're very conscientious. You're diligent. You're respectful. You're polite. You do all these things, but you don't do it to butter up anybody. You do it because this is being a good ambassador, a good representative of Jesus Christ. And so in that context, knowing that from the Lord, since you've been doing these things, you will receive a, a reward of the inheritance. So there is an inheritance that is received that is different from the inheritance that we get automatically when we believe in Jesus Christ. We already looked at those positional inheritances, but this one is different. This one involves rewards, decorations, crowns, privileges, opportunities. All that has to do with this type of inheritance. So we've gone through two of these so far, and hopefully you're beginning to get the feel of what, what we're doing, what we're seeing here. I have never seen anyone put this together. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back at all. I'm just trying to help you understand. I don't know why someone didn't do this before. Put it in some kind of visual somehow for people to look at this and say, oh yeah, there is a big difference, isn't there? There's a huge difference. And you can't afford to get them mixed up or else you're going to uh, get very confused. Yes. Yes, I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, this other one we just finished, I'll get some more hard copies. Is that, would that be possible? And what I'm going to do that I didn't do on this one, that I'm going to do on this one, and I'm going to redo on this one, I didn't know that people were going to take them and give them out and everything. I'm going to put a little notation on there. First of all, this is from Country Bible Church. I'm going to put our website on there. And I'm also going to say this is a visual that goes along with the teaching of Second Thessalonians Review. And if you'd like to get the review, it's on the website. But I'm afraid what happens is people look at this, and this was used as a visual aid to two or three hours of teaching. And if you just give it to someone, they don't have any of that teaching, they oh, I don't want this too complicated. I would, they need to know this is, is not for, it's really not to give to someone and for them to figure it out themselves. They may be able to do it, but most people will not. So that's what I'm going to do on this also. I'm going to put those notations on there, and I will make it available to you. Always, yeah, I know. I, I, everything that I have that's going to go out, even or that will be on the Internet, should be dated. But, well, yeah. Okay, we're out. We're just about out of time. I got about eight minutes, but I'm not going. I'm not even. The next one, what happened? There it is. The next one is probably the most confused, confused more than any other thing, and the most important one is this one right here. Safe, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, <laughs> if I can hear you. Maybe for experientially in the inheritance on Colossians, I, I, I maybe say like uh, for experiential service. You know, because just to say experience for uh, the reward of the inheritance, 
and say it's experiential, maybe to explain that that's for experiential service or that, service. That would be fine to yeah. explain it that way. I'm keeping the I'm keeping the positional experiential format all the way through here, though, in right. labeling these. And if you you can understand it by thinking, okay, now this is for service, or if you're right. explaining it to someone, certainly that would be a, an appropriate way to do it. But I'm I'm keeping this same format so that everyone can understand that these words, all of these words, have these very distinct differences in them with regards to how you have to interpret it in the Bible. And you have to get it right. And most people don't know. How many people are, did you know before just the last month or so that I taught that eternal life has a positional and experiential sense to it? I mean, everybody thinks, well, eternal life has to do with uh, not going to hell, living with God forever and heaven and so forth, and having life eternal and so forth. They didn't, you, did you know that it had an experiential sense? It's something that we must work towards to take hold of eternal life, all that type of thing? So these are keys that are very important for us to be able to open, unlock the true meaning and the, and the ideas that God is giving us in order to live a, the, the life that He wants us to. And this word right here, saved, is the most abused out of all of them. Because most people will take that word, saved, it's two words in the Greek. For the noun, it's a soteria. And in the verb, it's sozo. So whether you're talking about salvation or being saved, most people will put a positional sense. They think it's talking about being saved from eternal damnation. Everywhere you go in the Bible, that's the only sense they see it. And you're going to be coming against people who think that its works are necessary for salvation. And they will go to verses and they're going to point to it where works are necessary to be saved. There are verses that are very clear about this. And you have to be able, in your own words, to explain to them, well, see, the word is used in two different ways. Sometimes it's referring to eternal salvation. Sometimes it's just talking about being delivered from something. And it doesn't have an eternal life connotation to it at all in the sense of not going to, to hell and going to heaven. You have to be able to articulate that and in all of these words, what we're going to see is the overwhelming majority of verses are in the experiential sense. But what does mankind do? Every time they see it, they think it has something to do with eternal salvation. And that's why so many people undergird their false doctrine of works-based salvation, eternal salvation, because they don't make these distinctions. I think that'd be a good place to start next time. Is on uh, saved. I'll tell you how silly I was. I thought we'd get through this whole thing tonight. <laughs> Before we came in, I was putting a last touch on a PowerPoint that I was going to use after this. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word, the precision of it, the power of it. We thank you for this time that you've given us to understand these keys that unlock a whole new perspective, a whole new panorama of the Bible 
unveils itself as we apply these keys to our study of the Word of God. We pray that you will help us to be able to understand these, to incorporate them every time that we study the Word so that we can rightly divide it, that we can show others that God has taken care through faith of the most important thing in life. And now He expects us to be good servants by learning and applying His Word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.